We're going to look at the story of Ruth and we're going to look behind it and we are going to see our wonderful, amazing, incredible, lovely God. Before we dive into Ruth's story, we're going to wind back in history to the beginning of the time of the Judges, and we're going to read together from Judges chapter 2. It's coming to the end of Joshua's lifetime. The Exodus journey through the wilderness is over. Moses has died, and Joshua has led the children of Israel into the promised land. And he has told them, God says... Go in, take possession of the land. God has given it to you. Drive out the Canaanites, the people who live in it. They're a bad lot. Don't strike any deals with them. Have nothing to do with them. Get rid of them all. But they haven't done it. And God has sent the angel of the Lord, no less, to have a word with them. Judges chapter 2. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you not done this? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voice and wept. Then they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each his own way to his inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at timnath Heres in the mountain of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. 
They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Keep that in mind and flip over to the next book, the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, that there was a famine in the land. Came to pass. It just so happened in the days when the judges ruled. We're talking about that awful period in Israel's history that stretched from the days of Joshua until the time when Saul was made king. It was a period of about 300 years years. And it's that period that we've just read about from Judges chapter 2. Let me fill you in just a little bit more on what was going on then. When Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land, he told them to be careful to fear the Lord and to be faithful to him. He said, be very strong, be careful to obey the Lord, do not associate with the nations that remain among you, Hold fast to the Lord your God. And some of the Canaanites had been driven out of the land, but there were still a lot of them left behind. And Joshua warned the people, he said, 
Joshua chapter 29, If you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. You see, God wanted his people to be separate, different, devoted to him, obedient, good, pure. They were to be an example to the other nations. They weren't to be like them. They were to be holy people. That's what holy means. And I hope you realize that God expects his people to be holy. It's still the same today. Well, it's not quite the same. You really shouldn't go about slaughtering unbelievers all around you. You have to live alongside them. You have good news for them. You have to be among them to tell them and to show them how much God loves them. It's why you're here. It's why you're not in heaven already. To be fair to ourselves too, it's, it's maybe a bit harder for us. I mean, wouldn't it be easier to stay faithful if we could just get rid of all the sinners and there were none of them around? Those unbelievers we live among, nice people that they are, they're snares and traps. Just like Joshua said the Canaanites would be to the children of Israel. And whether it's deliberate or not on their part, they put pressure on you, all kinds of subtle pressure to, to fit in. A lot of their ways look good to us. A lot of the stuff they have looks very attractive. You can be sucked in before you know it if you're not careful. You need to be ever so careful with the unsaved people around you if you want to stay faithful to God, if you want to be holy like God says you should. But that's, by the way, sometimes I go off on one. The Canaanites were a bad lot. They worshipped idols. They worshipped the Baals. There was more than one of the Baals. Each area had its own. And they worshipped the Baals and their female partners, the Ashtoreth. The Baals and the Ashtoreth were supposedly gods who controlled the fertility of the land, and they did that by performing sexual acts. And they needed, the gods needed to be constantly reminded to do that, because if they didn't do it, then the crops would fail and the herds wouldn't reproduce. So worshipping the Baals and the Ashtoreth involved people performing the acts that they wanted to remind their gods to do out in the open, on the hilltops, where the gods and everybody else could see them. And the Canaanites had been at that kind of filth and idolatry for centuries. They were out and out evil, and demonic wouldn't be too strong a word to use to describe them and their way of life. And that's why God took their land from them and gave it to the children of Israel, and it's why he said that they had to be slaughtered. It was God's judgment. It was justice after long, long years of patience and lots of opportunities for them to repent. You know, people say that the way God treated the Canaanites was harsh. They say, you know, that's not like Jesus. It's not like the God of the New Testament. But you've got to have that bit of perspective on it. These were bad, bad people who had many opportunities don't go thinking that that means that your unsaved friends are any less dangerous than the Canaanites were. 
Paul says in Ephesians 2 to the Christians in Ephesus, Before you were saved, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That, that verse is about you before you were saved. So the, the sweet old lady who lives next door to you, but she just happens not to be saved. Wicked to the core. The unsaved woman that you're maybe taking a shine to at work, she's following the prince of the power of the air. That unsaved fellow who's so cute and you're wishing he would ask you out, the devil's at work. Living in a world among unsaved people is a dangerous, dangerous business. You have to be ever so careful. Uh, if, if you're not saved, I would guess you're finding all of this very offensive. You're probably thinking to yourself, I know I'm not saved, but hey, come on. I'm not that bad. Oh, you are. You just don't know it. Satan is, is leading you along by the nose. He's, he's very subtle. And there's not a blind thing that you can do about it. That's exactly why you need to be saved. But back to the story. We're never going to get through this at this rate. The book of Judges then, it's about the children of Israel's total failure to stay faithful to God. They didn't drive the Canaanites out of the land. They hung out with them. They intermarried with them. They copied their sins. They flirted with their gods. And that got them into a 300-year downward spiral. A spiral of sin. The people sin and they follow the ways and the worship of the Canaanites. And then God allows their enemies to oppress them, to bring them to their senses. And when things get really bad, they repent, seek God's forgiveness, look for mercy. And when they repent, God pities them, delivers them from their enemies, raises up a judge to deliver them. And by the way, when we say judge, don't think judge in a courtroom. These were tribal warriors who rallied the troops to fight the enemy. The hardship brought on by their own sin drives God's people back to them, and he raises up a judge to deliver them. And then there's a time of peace. And in that time of peace, they slip back into their old ways, back into the ways of the Canaanites, and the whole cycle starts again, and again, and again, and again. And each time their sin is worse than the time before. There were six judges that we know about. Just to remind you, there was Othniel, there was Ehud, there was Deborah, there was Gideon, there was Jephthah, and there was Samson. They were the people God raised up to deliver Israel from oppression. They're not great examples of godliness by any stretch of the imagination. They're certainly not people that you could model yourself on, despite what maybe your Sunday school teachers have taught you. 
Just as Israel went from bad to worse with each turn of that spiral, each judge was worse than the one before. And Samson, the last one, was a promiscuous, violent, arrogant, big oaf. Sometimes God just works with what there is. And these men were what there was in those days. And the reason I'm telling you that is it just gives you an idea of how bad things were in these days when the judges ruled. By the end of the, the days when the judges ruled, despite everything God did, you could hardly tell the difference between Israel and the rest of the nations around them. The country had descended into anarchy. And the book of Judges finishes with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So you've got the picture. That's what I'm trying to do. Just build up a picture for you. It's background to the, the story of Ruth what Israel was like in those days. Dark, dark days in Israel. We don't know when during those dark days that the story happened. Some people think it must have been around the time of Gideon, but we're not sure. Whenever it was, it must have been at one of those lowest points. It must have been at some time in the darkest of those dark days because there was a prolonged famine in the land. God was angry with Israel. Oh my, what a mess. What is God going to do? What can God do? Is he going to give up on them now? Is he going to wipe out the children of Israel? But then what about that promise? Do you remember the promise, the promise he made to Abraham? Descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, a great nation, a blessing to the whole world. What about that? So they're impossibly dark days, but something has to be done. Israel needs somebody and not another Othniel or Ehud or Deborah or Gideon or Jephthah or Samson. Because you see, it's clear now they don't just need to be delivered from the Canaanites, they need to be delivered from themselves. That's what the years of the judges prove. They keep on heading the way of the Canaanites dead in trespasses and sin, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work and the sons of disobedience. And they're powerless to stop it. They can't be faithful to God. They don't have it in them. They need to be delivered from themselves. But who's going to do that? I mean, it looks like there's nobody left, doesn't it? And in those darkest of the dark days when the judges ruled, God shines a spotlight on one tiny village out in the middle of nowhere, can't be more than a handful of families, probably most of them related to each other. A little community of faithful people, despite all that's going on around them, still faithful, but even so, just like everybody else, they're suffering the consequences of Israel's sin. The famine has struck them as well. 
God changes spotlight on a little community of faithful people, and in particular, he shines a spotlight on one very ordinary family in that community. The family of a man called Elimelech, Elimelech, a man of Bethlehem. You know the story well, but just in case, let me quickly refresh your memory. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the promised land. And Elimelech takes his wife Naomi and his sons Malon and Kilion, and he emigrates to Moab. Sadly, Elimelech dies in Moab, and his sons, who by now have married two Moabite women, Orpha and Ruth, they die as well. Naomi and her two daughters-in-law are left to fend for themselves. Naomi hears that the famine in Israel has ended, so she decides that she wants to return home. And Orpah and Ruth decide to go with her, but Naomi pleads with them to turn back and stay with their own people in their own land, because what will there be for them in Israel? And Orpah does go back, but Ruth says, no, I will never leave you. And she goes on with her to Bethlehem. But there's nobody to provide for them in Bethlehem. So Ruth has to go out to work and glean in the fields. And it just so happens that she ends up in a field that belongs to a man called Boaz, who just happens to be a relative of Naomi's. And when he hears that Ruth has come with Naomi from Moab, he's kind to her, and Ruth goes home and tells Naomi, and the old woman is over the moon. She says, you keep going to his field, girl, and she's probably singing to herself, I can hear the bells. Come the end of the harvest season, and Boaz being like most men and a bit slow about these things, Naomi gets Ruth to ask Boaz to marry her, to be her redeemer. And she does, and he says he will. But there's a problem. There's a nearer relative, he's the villain of the plot. This near relative really ought to have first claim on Ruth. Uh-oh. The next morning, Boaz goes to the city gate where the elders meet. He calls the closer relative over and he asks him, will he exercise his right and redeem, that is, buy back the property that once belonged to Elimelech? And if he does, of course, he'll have to marry Ruth so that Elimelech's property can be passed on to an heir. That was the custom in those times. And when the nearer relative hears that there are strings attached, he, he renounces his right of redemption, and that, you could say, leaves the field clear for Boaz. And he and Ruth are married, and they have a son called Obed, and Granny's over the moon, and so are the neighbours, and they all live happily ever after. Oh, and guess what? Their grandson, great-grandson rather, is King David, the king after God's own heart, who's going to sort out all the mess that Israel has gotten itself into. It's a lovely story, isn't it? Everybody likes a story like that. A story about ordinary people who come on hard times, 
a story about hardship, about loss, grief, regrets, misery. You have a damsel in distress. You have a plight that looks hopeless. And then a hero shows up, the man who's going to put it all right, and she wins his heart and he falls for her. But then there's a problem, there's a villain in the plot, and they can't be together unless love finds a way. But of course then love does find a way, and they get married, and they all live happily ever after. And you've heard that plot lots of times. It's a beautiful story. It's a recipe for a bestseller. Everybody loves a good story. And as, as love stories go, this is among the best of them. You can see that it's a beautiful story, but I bet you don't appreciate just how beautiful it is. Because they tell me that if you could speak Hebrew, and if you understood Hebrew literature, you would see that Ruth's story doesn't just have all the things that make a story that stirs our hearts, but it's poetic. Its language is beautiful and it's very, very skillfully constructed. I hope to help you appreciate just how beautiful this wee story is over the coming weeks. But, of course, I want to do more than that because this story is more than just beautiful. There's something very, very special about it. There's something so special about this story that God put it in his book. Why did God do that? Why did he put this love story into his book so that it would be here for the rest of time for his people to read? Well, I'll tell you. The story is about Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. But it's not entirely about Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. This story is really about God. This story will tell you some very special and important things about God. And that's really why we're going to take our time to look at it over the next lot of weeks. We're going to look at the story of Ruth, and we're going to look behind it as we're meant to. And we are going to see our wonderful, amazing, incredible, lovely God. You know, it's one of the biggest mistakes we make with the Bible, especially with these Old Testament stories that we know so well. We meet people like Ruth and Boaz, and we think that God has put them there as examples for us to learn from. If you read the Bible stories like that, you're going to miss out big time. You're going to end up trying to live like Samson or Joshua or Moses, or Abraham, or David. And if you try to live like them, you're going to end up mighty frustrated and maybe a bit, maybe more than a bit, confused. If you find the Old Testament confusing, that could be one of the reasons you're maybe not reading it in the right way. The whole book, Genesis to Revelation, is about God, and you've always got to look for God in it. You've got to ask, what does this tell me about God? You'll understand and you'll enjoy your Bible far better if you do. And that's another thing I want to do as we look at this story. I want you to see God in it. But I have another reason, a third reason. 
dark, dark days. An evil world that's forsaken God. A world full of pressures and temptations. A world where good people stick out like a sore thumb and are hated for their goodness. Is any of that ringing bells? A world where bad things happen because of sin. Hunger and poverty and sickness. War. Does that sound familiar? Disappointment. Sadness, grief, misery, loneliness. Hmm. And in that kind of world, God shines a spotlight on a little community of faithful people. And I want you to see over the coming weeks what that little community of faithful people living in a dark, dark world looks like. And I want you to see what a little community of faithful people living in a dark, wicked world can do when our amazing God gets to work. You see, I think there are parallels, aren't there? The world is a dark, dark place. But here and there, here in Thurlis, other places across the south of Ireland, little communities of faithful people. And I want you to see what's possible. Even in the darkest of dark days, when it seems like God has withdrawn, in the kind of days you could forgive anyone for thinking God has left us, even in the darkest of dark days, when it seems like God has withdrawn, he's still at work. He's still doing his thing. He still has his people, ordinary folks, struggling to make a living and get by. Which tells me that those ordinary folks matter to God. And it tells me too that what God's doing in the lives of those ordinary folks who are struggling to get by, that matters to God too. No matter how dark it gets, and no matter how hopeless it seems, don't forget you matter to God. You matter to God very much. And what God is doing in your life matters. It's very, very important to God. And what he's doing in your wee community matters too. Elimelech had no idea. Naomi had no idea. Ruth had no idea. Boaz had no idea. But God was doing something. Something good. Something big. And Christian, you have no idea. But what I do want you to do when you get home this afternoon Put your feet up and dream dreams. Put your feet up and dream big dreams about what God might be doing in your life. Dream big dreams about what God might be doing in Thurless Baptist Church or your church if you're a visitor with us this morning. 
And then, having dreamt your dreams, make up your mind to stay faithful to God in this dark, dark world and don't let it suck you in. And if maybe you have been sucked in, maybe you've been sucked in a bit by the world and your love for the Lord has grown a little bit cold and your enthusiasm isn't maybe just what it used to be. Maybe you've been sucked in a lot and you're way off out there, disobedient to God and you know it. Can I plead with you to put it right? To come back to him? Can I remind you what he says if we confess our sins? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's very gracious. He'd welcome you back. And you have no idea what God can do with you even yet. And lastly, if it should be that you're not yet saved, well, if those 300 years of the judges tell us anything, they tell us that you cannot beat sin. You cannot beat sin. You're heading, if you're not saved, you're heading the way of the Canaanites. Dead in your trespasses and sin, powerless to do anything about it, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, whether you realize it or not, he's got you by the nose and he's leading you along. He's leading you all the way by the nose. You don't even know it, leading you to destruction. You need someone to deliver you. You need someone better than an Othniel or an Ehud or a Deborah or a Gideon or a Jephthah or a Samson. You need someone better than King David. You need King Jesus. He's the only one who can. And I do trust and I pray that you would come to him this morning and see what he could do with your life. Let's pray. Father, it is a dark, dark world. Help us to be faithful to you. Help us to be holy people. And help us to cling to the thought that even in the darkest of dark days, you're still at work, working out your purpose. And may we, Lord, have the joy and the privilege of seeing your hand at work in our lives. And until we see that, help us to continue faithfully serving you for the glory of your name. Amen.